0: this is the Running
1: Publix Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only one topic. We dive deep. We explore it completely. It's training. It's Tuesday.
0: Training Tuesday. 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 What are you doing to yourself?
1: I got hair all over me, Kirk. Why? <laughs> I, I gave Braden a haircut right before this.
0: I say, it couldn't be yours. No, no, but I, there's like one
1: hair. You ever get one little hair stuck in your shirt?
0: And it like bothers you? And it pokes you. Um, not in recent years, but I can I can pick up what you're laying down there.
1: Yeah, I've got one somewhere in my, my tummy region. <laughs>
0: Man, life
1: of a dad. My poor belly. We'll figure it out.
0: All right. I'll beat. Yeah, I was just going to say, you're, you're, so we have these customized screen names that we get to put on ourselves every recording, and mine is inappropriate as they usually are, so I'm not going to say mine. But Bracken yours is usually very inappropriate and today it just says body is mush what does that mean Uh, that's it my body is just (laughs) pure mush
1: i'm beat i'm we talked on the phone this weekend right we talked that i'm in entering my base building mode which is nonsense for april but this is the world that i live in right now so i'm healthy i want to get stronger I want to bulletproof my body a little better so these little things can't pop up. And I want to get my volume up so that I can layer in some real training so that by the time I'm ready to race, I'm ready to throw down. But I'm in that all-important dead zone right now. Dude, do tell. Anyone who's ever been out of shape and has started adding everything back in, strength and running at the same time, knows this feeling, which is the training just beats you down. It doesn't matter how easier going you're not used to the pounding Mm -hmm. and i'm not used to the pounding and i'm a little bit out of strength work shape i've been doing it very very regular now and
0: i'm building strength and volume at the same time and that's that's wearing on me you got like a a week or two window where you're just broken down and beat to shit and not Uh. recovered nor adapted yet and you're in that like dead zone right now which is the worst i have that conversation with all of my clients when they start And we're like a weekend and they feel like crap and they're just tired and not adapted. Athletes starting a strength program. You're right where you should be, man. I am. And you know what? I have years of of
1: training myself. I know my body and I have years of telling other people what to do. And it still hits me in a way that you start second guessing yourself. It's really important, I think, right now for me to say this out loud because I feel like crap, Hmm. but I know it's going to get better. I know this is not injury or overtraining syndrome this is just a lot of new stimulus breaking me down a little bit and it'll it'll be what one week at best three weeks at worst I've, I've got two more weeks to just sit and take this and then suddenly i'm gonna stop noticing fatigue on runs and i'm gonna start feeling a little pep in my step but right now man lisa put me in the ground yesterday
0: and what in a workout
1: yeah not even a workout just a run well we know she likes to burn it
0: hot sometimes
1: she does but she's she's been getting better about it we went out to do just a few miles a little date run cute quarantine date and it turned into six ish seven maybe somewhere between six and seven we hit and i was so sore during because we were running on concrete like every step yeah and i did a i did a pavement run three days prior to that two days prior so this was two pavement runs in one week which is a hundred percent more than all the previous weeks this year (laughs) Mm-hmm. And I it my quads hurt. my hamstrings were tired from doing Bulgarian split squats and weighted lunges. My hips and butt were just burning because I've been doing front squat. I've been doing thrusters. I've been doing front rack uh, walk out and holds and re-rack you know just all the stuff we've been talking about on here, it's
0: it's all hitting me at the same time. I'm mm-hmm. beat. If you weren't feeling beat, I would be more concerned than if you were feeling beat. Because then you'd be like the bionic superhero man. So Yeah. Good thing about both of us, Kirk, is that uh, we're responders. We are. You know what's kind of wild? As you said, it is just, it's tomfoolery to be starting this in April. Like, when did April become late? Because our season starts in January yes, yeah, we're and February right now. The U.S. National Series never started till April. Sometimes May. It was May in Montana years ago, mm-hmm. and now you're in April, feeling like you're behind the eight ball. We got all the time in the world, brother, especially in this new, unique season. So I don't think it's late at all. I think you're right on. That's ah, fine. I'm following the seasons, Kirk. <laughs> following the seasons. Springtime. It's thawing and so are my legs. You're just getting ready to for those beach muscles because you're gonna have your shirt off a lot. I know that's why you're hitting the weights. Yeah. Yeah, I'm starting to pack it on already. Yeah, I can, those chesticles are looking nice. (sighs) Oh yeah, Uh, chest is coming in quick. Good.
1: (laughs) So that's me, Kirk. That's me. (laughs) I'll be good in a week or two, but for a while here, I'm just going to be tired. I might even try to take a nap today.
0: There's probably like 10 of my people who I, I get like right now who are in some sort of that phase and the lifting is stupid or it's beating me up and I'm sore and it's affecting my running and it's just good to hear that it's happening to you as well. So don't fret, people. You're going to be tired a bit. But all of a sudden, one day, you're going to go out for a run very shortly and not expect anything of it, and you're going to float. And you're going to be like, oh, finally, that will happen. And you know what
1: the worst part was? I floated on day one.
0: (laughs) Of course It's almost
1: almost better to hurt on day one because day one, if you feel good, it gives you false hope. Mm -hmm. Day one can lie to you, Kirk,
0: and it lied to me. Sorry to hear that. It's all right. I'll be back. What about you? You've got something going on. (laughs) I mean, I'm in the uh, city of unrest. I'm here in Minneapolis with the trial going on and all that. I went to my Walgreens down the street to pick up a prescription yesterday and the windows were all smashed and boarded up with like the looting all of, I mean, this has been going on forever. I guess for those of you who don't live here since all this George Floyd situation and then the recent killing, we don't get political here and we won't, but like every single building in uptown, downtown, it's all boards. Everything has either been smashed or wrecked. Everything is locked up. We have curfews. I get a text every night saying, There's a curfew tonight. You must be in your home by 7 p.m. Like things like that are going on. So this week is super tense in Minneapolis because they're doing closing arguments and then maybe coming to some sort of verdicts. And if the verdict is like not guilty on any accounts, the city's literally going to burn. So that's going on in Minneapolis right now. Isn't that fun? The days we live in, Kirk, it's wild right now. You stay safe out there. Yeah, I'm in the North Burbs and it's still like just, I'm like just far enough out where it doesn't hit us, but it's kind of surreal when you drive through town and you see the boards and stuff. Um, these are crazy. real historic times. People are going to talk about these in the future. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. But other than that, I got to get this lump cut out of my hand on Friday, Bracken. They can't
1: just smash it with a textbook? Do you see it? I, oh, I see it. I've been, I've been watching that little goiter
0: grow. It's right below my middle finger. I think it's from my road rage. Just <laughs> I'm That's a calcium deposit. <laughs> I've just been overuse of the middle finger. Now I've had this little bump start growing on my palm. Probably just a cyst or something. And it's like not super comforting to have there. And it's not getting bigger nor smaller, but it's not going anywhere. So on Friday I gotta get this thing lopped off. They gotta put me in like a surgery gown and wheel me in and cut my hand open. And then I can't then I can't touch a weight for like a while. So my plan is to go to the gym Friday morning and blow my grip out to the point I'm going to walk in for surgery. And that guy's going to be like, dude, you got a sweet pump going. I'll be like, yeah, I know I do. I just hit it hard. (laughs) And then you're going to lop this thing off.
1: Do you remember what I did right before my, my knee surgery?
0: Uh, I don't remember.
1: I I did a hundred mile ride the day before. Oh yeah. You had a good pump too for your surgeon. I wanted, I wanted my legs to be so smashed that I didn't
0: notice that I was not using them for the first week. Well they said they're going to apply a tourniquet to my wrist. So like there's no excess bleeding and stuff, which I get, but I'll tell you how pumped I'm going to look with a tourniquet around my wrist. They're going to be real impressed. Good job, I'm going to say. I'm going to ask him if he, you know, if he's impressed.
1: Should. <laughs> <Sure. laughs> Lisa's going in for surgery on Monday. What why? Uh for an umbilical hernia.
0: Oh, I saw her post about that on her uh, Instagram, I think. Yeah,
1: she got it with our with her first pregnancy with Brayden. Mm. Popped her belly button straight out. And now she has, um, it, in the last couple of months, she noticed that like intestines actually going into it a little bit.
0: Mm. When yeah, she, okay. she was
1: seeing a, a PT for some, uh, she had diastasis recti where your mm-hmm. abdominals pull apart a little bit with, with pregnancy. And so she was working on tightening and getting everything working well and activating correctly in there. And she's like, you know, you do definitely have intestine coming into there as well. So if you're done with kids, it's probably time to get that fixed.
0: So she had an innie, now she has an Audi, and then she's gonna have an innie again. Is that what's the the plan? God willing. I I can wrap my head around that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Lisa, good luck. That sounds worse than my palm being cut open. Good luck. You both
1: have a lump you don't want there anymore. That's exactly right. So her thing is that she's not gonna be able to run for several weeks. Mm. which is, as we talked about on her episode, that's her mental health practice each day, and she's not going to be able to lift or do her... Because she does two workouts every day. She runs, and then she does what she calls her workout, which is something mm. strength-related or 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 some sort of circuit or strength cardio. She
0: does that every day, and she can't do that for six or seven weeks. So, Man, and she's going under anesthesia for that, I assume. Yeah. I would imagine that's a pretty... Yeah. Well, I
1: wish you both well. One half of the running public team will be cut open this week. Just and I are the only ones holding strong.
0: You are. I think keep it that way. All right. I would really like to have no surgery this year. Uh huh. I think you're. I think you're in route to zero surgeries. Speaking of not being able to catch a break, did you see Aaron Newell? Oh, I saw something about surgery coming
1: up. Compartment syndrome in both calves.
0: I wonder. Has he been? I mean, that's something he's probably had going on forever. Years. <laughs> that's a bad one. And you know, you look at him run and I, I mean, is that, are any of us perfect? No. I mean, maybe there's some that are close, but he doesn't have anything glaringly, obviously wrong. He might be a bit of an overstrider, but like. He's a strong, bouncy runner. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you, do you want to explain what compartment syndrome is? Do you know? Uh,
1: it's basically when there's some, some tissue in your legs that does not expand when your muscles expand. Now, this is way overly simplified, but that's intentional. And so basically your calves cannot expand. They're like cut uh, picture a picture of fishing net too tight around a whole bunch of fish. It just squeezes them down on there and they can't go where they need to go. And that's
0: basically what's happening in your calf. That is not a medical explanation. But from people who have had compartment syndrome, and I have one athlete who had the surgery back in the day, uh, like you start running and a minute in, you it's like you, you can't. You can't get through it it's one of those things that render you useless so it's hard to diagnose you have to basically have needles
1: inserted very deep into your calf i think to take many biopsies like eight or eight times per calf and he just went through that but it's it's debilitating and then the surgery isn't guaranteed to work but they basically Mm -hmm. go in and remove the (laughs) the impediments stretch things out so that your your calf muscle can expand correctly
0: And there's a recovery process to that, obviously. So, and Aaron, I feel for you. He'll be the true bionic man when this is all done. They always think like people either think they have some sort of calf issue or they have shin splints that are really bad and don't go away. And people, it gets misdiagnosed. Like compartment syndrome gets misdiagnosed all the time with chronic lower leg issues. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should go get those, those biopsies done on my end. But yeah, tough go. Yeah, that's rough. So, anyways, don't turn to me for medical explanations because that was terrible. No, but that made sense. You don't want to squeeze those fish too tight. Those fish are going to be harmed, and we don't want that. And that's painful. I let those salmon fly upstream, <laughs> however that works. Why don't we? Uh, why don't we talk about running and endurance? Oh, we're going to talk about running today, Kirk. Lots and lots of running. Yeah. Why don't you lead us in? This is uh, You kind of decided it was a good day to talk about this.
1: Well, we've been kicking around the idea of having an ultra episode for a while, but suddenly things just came to a head. A bunch of our athletes just completed ultras and a bunch of the running public listeners just completed or have them coming up. And we had probably more ultra questions pour in in this last six to seven days than we have ever. Mm-hmm. Like all at once this week compared to all the questions we've ever got cumulative. So it's time It's time to talk about ultra training, racing,
0: and recovering. I feel like this could be like a two or three hour episode if we wanted it to be. Yeah. Because this is, you know, there's a lot of nuances with ultra running, training, training, racing, lead up, gear, nutrition, all of it. But we're going to do our best. Well, not Cliff Notes version, but our tidy version of all things ultra. First of all, Mm -hmm. I think the disclaimer is that
1: Ultra training and racing is not an exact science. Nothing endurance is exact science, but the shorter the race, the more precise the science is. The longer it goes, the more the mind comes into play and the more the GI track comes into play. And when those two things get let loose and they start running around out there on course, all the correct or incorrect training in the world doesn't help. Mm-hmm so that's just your that's your preface to all of this yeah like you could follow all of this perfectly and have a terrible race and you could do everything wrong and have a fantastic race because your mind matters so much Mm -hmm. and your ability to consume calories and handle it matters so much
0: i mean fitness is a large part of the equation of course huge and proper periodized training and build up and taper in and all of that but There's like a 50% extenuating circumstance factors regarding your gear, your nutrition, any other factors that may pop up. And you're right. It's one of those things like the stars to have a good race. You feel like the stars must align. Let's say you go run a 5k or a 10k and you nailed your nutrition. you got a lot of sleep. You nailed your training and your threshold work and you show up and do well. That's the stars aligning, right? And you come together. Like for an ultra to go well and perfectly, if there is such a thing, It's like the universe needs to align right everything so there's a lot of things to dive into
1: there is i mean you have your physical preparation your mental preparation and execution and then you have your nonsense which is gear fueling temperature blisters all that nonsense that you can kind of control but you really don't have any say over so physical mental and the nonsense and they all they all come into play almost equally on race day. Some may never show up and then it doesn't matter, but they're saying your success is pretty much equal on race day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You can have great mental, great physical, and the nonsense wins. Or the nonsense doesn't show up. You have your mental games on point, your physical sucks, and you still have a great day because you're just out grinding people. Mm-hmm. Or you can, the nonsense can be on point, your training's on point, and your mind crumbles and you just walk off course and you can't
0: do it. So mm-hmm. all three are equally important on race day. Yep, more so than I would say other distances. And when we talk ultra. I guess technically we're talking 50k or above. Yeah, is where the the line is drawn. 50k and beyond. Now I know you have a list of questions. Do you want to go through them, or do we want to do this our own way here? Let's just do it our own way. We'll hit it along the way, and if we don't, then we'll hit it during the Q and A. Okay. Phones turned off. We're just gonna we're just gonna chit chat. We're going to chat. I like chatting with you, Bracken. So why don't we start with actual, like the the bones of this all, which is the training component. Things that we believe in, things that I believe are, we believe are misconceptions. How do you even approach a race and hopefully in the distant distance because you need some time? Let's start there. How do you feel about that? I like it.
1: If we're starting at the very, very basics, Kirk, rarely do people choose to train for an ultra and then pick one once they get there. They almost always have a race that excites them, that lights their fire, and then they train to that race. Which means step one is learn the course as best you can, and then you have to find out what are the requirements of my ultra. A 50k flat is not equal to a 50k in the mountains. They both present their own unique challenges and their own unique principles that you have to, to use in training to be ready for.
0: Now, before we even get to that, I want to ask a very important question. Let's say um, that you are an avid runner or endurance athlete, meaning you're training for something or at least you're running at least four or five, six days a week and you're relatively fit. Let's say your fitness is good and you get this wild hair to do an ultra. Before we even start the training, I guess, how soon is too soon and how far out is too far out? How soon does a guy run in 40 miles a week With a long run of 10 or 15 miles let's say how long does that guy or girl need in your opinion before they're ready to tackle 50k or beyond i have an answer to this
1: okay i do too okay mine is you could do it tomorrow Mm. because with an ultra i personally think it's safer to run an ultra than a road marathon and to train for one i agree with that because it's soft it's inherently so long that you can't work as hard and so in race injuries are tougher to come by You rarely hear of stress fractures occurring during an ultra or things like that. I don't want to get too far down that because there's always people who have done that. But Mm -hmm. anyone, I believe, can finish an ultra because walking is so accepted Mm -hmm. on the trails and in the mountain. It only comes down to how fast you want to do it. So if you're willing to finish, if you just go much slower than you're capable of going, you're going to finish a hundred miler. It just might take a long time and you might be miserable.
0: Okay. So tomorrow. Tomorrow is as soon as you can do it.
1: Listen, if you can run 15 miles, you can walk run 31.1. For...
0: Okay, well, damn it, Bracken, why, why we got to talk semantics here? You want to show up and do well. You want to get 90% of your body's capability, 80%. Do you have a different answer or no?
1: Well, then I, I like a, a full marathon prep. I think you need at least 12 to 16 weeks, and that's at the minimum. Twelve would be the really low end if you're already doing some real long runs and your volume's been higher for years. Otherwise, I like that sixteen to twenty-four week range.
0: Okay, so you want you want half, uh, yeah, a third to half a year. Let's just call it Correct. quarter to half a year, because that's the question that always comes up: is I want to do an ultra, and I, but some people were super inspired by the Ross Weimer interview. I have an athlete right now who that is the reason. Weimer, that, Weimer. I'm sorry, Weimer. It's easy. It's, it just rhymes with Weiner. Yeah, it doesn't – I guess it rhymes with wiener. Um, You know, that's the sole reason he's doing Utah in July, for example. And the question was, which one do I pick? How far out? All of those things. Um, I think in somebody who's conditioned, I think nine weeks. That's what I think. Really? As short as possible. If you're already doing 10 to 15-mile long runs, I think the bare, bare minimum to show up and probably not completely blow up and wreck yourself is nine weeks – based on the fact that we can get in two full four-week training cycles and an extended two-week taper to finish it off. I think that gives us two opportunities for back-to-back long runs or et cetera. It gives us two opportunities every three weeks to hit something crazy and just enough of a taper in. I think nine weeks. That's what I think. That's just my opinion. You're you're not wrong. I just like three.
1: That's fine. Because the first one, is a freebie. Your second one, you learned. And then the third, you really test out in my eyes what you're going to do on race day. But I suppose you could get rid of that third and enter race day with a little bit more of that, that wide eye fear of what's about to happen, but knowing I could probably handle it. That's right. But okay. But there are longer. So our, our minimum between the two of us is nine to 12 weeks in order to attack an ultra.
0: If you're already conditioned going in, if you're already training much like maybe I am, or you are, and you can stay healthy. Okay, I just wanted to get that out of the way because everybody asked that question if they're not already an avid ultra pursuant.
1: Well, and he, here's a real life example, which is me. I trained 26 weeks building up towards the Spartan Race World Championships, which was a, at the time, it was like a 14.7 mile race in Killington with six, six and a half thousand feet of vert. And on mm-hmm. race day, I made a game time decision after I all out raced lap one to continue on for the ultra podium in lap two. And lap one was two hours and 59 minutes. And lap two, I fell apart terribly and ran 440. Mm-hmm. But I finished and I ran every flat, every downhill and I power hiked most of the ups except for the last couple. And I finished and I did fine. So I didn't do any specific prep for that. So on mm-hmm. that day, I just showed up and I I doubled my expected distance, but it was a mess, but I finished. Mm-hmm. Had I wanted to race that, Because I got caught from people that were 40 minutes down. Had I wanted to race that, I would have needed, like you said, minimum nine weeks, maybe 12 more to be able to attack.
0: Yeah, but if you go out 30 minutes slower in your first lap, you come back the same, you end up faster, and you're not as miserable. So that's a strategy thing. I still would have crumbled. But the point is, with the terrible setup, I
1: finished the race with no ultra prep. With the worst pacing strategy you could ever possibly have.
0: Somebody says, hey, if you... If I put a gun to your head, could you go walk 31 miles? That's roughly what a 50K is, 31 miles. I bet you almost every person listening would say yes, right? So the answer in completion is probably yes. Yeah. But performance is another another you know beast. So I interrupted you when you were getting into, I don't even remember where you were going. So I think you were going before I started that how far out question. With just philosophy and ultra training as a whole.
1: Yeah. Identify your race.
0: Identify your race.
1: And then identify the demands in that regard it's no different than running a 5k you look at the course profile and you decide how much of my quality work and easy work needs to be done on hills Mm -hmm. generally ultras are hillier than flats but for an example there's a guy that i work with named jay jay's an awesome guy has a big history of bike riding and racing big engine and it hasn't yet translated as well to running but he's prepping for the killington ultra beast at the end of the year and he did a, a uh, basically a fitness check. He jumped into a flat 50K race hmm. three or four weeks ago. And he fell apart the last three to five miles as badly as he's ever fallen apart. And he cramped and he blistered and he never blisters because he had to run the same stride for 31 miles. No hills, no downhills, no power hiking, no technical. It was the same stride and that killed him. as you take someone who's prepped to run the same stride for 31 miles and you put him in the mountains and he's going to cramp and blister and fall apart because training for 150k is not the same as training for another so the first is identify what is my 50k and then you get to work because you now know how long roughly it should take because you have to be prepared for the duration the amount of time how much vert and uh, descending do i need to be prepared for going up
0: going down and then just match your training to that. Well, and I think we should just insert a quick caveat following our Swing the Hammer Hard episode last week, which people responded really well to. Mm-hmm. It's an easy concept to wrap your mind around once it's explained. Swinging the hammer harder and training in certain instances or avenues than the race is going to demand. Now, there, there's an exception with the ultras,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? If you're training for a 50K, you shouldn't be, go- in my opinion anyways, you shouldn't be going out and running 70K in practice necessarily. So there's like a little bit, there's other ways to swing the hammer hard, correct? And intensity Mm -hmm. in other ways, but it is the one caveat in a sense where like, if you're training for a 50 K or 50 miler, that doesn't mean you need to go out and run 50 miles before the race to make sure you're ready. And I just want to get that out there right away. Yeah.
1: No, that's important to say, because if you look at marathons or 10 K or 5 K at the world level or at the national level, or even at the high age group level, It's the 80-20 split between the number of high level people who are doing high volume and really long runs versus those who are getting by with low volume and not going past like 16 or 18 miles in a long run.
0: Correct. By
1: the time you get up to an ultra, at worst, it's 50-50 the split between people who run over 30 miles or longer in training run and those who don't. At worst, it might even be 80-20 the opposite way. Yep. There are as many examples as there are not of people that get by on lower volume and not doing long runs, even anywhere close to their
0: race distance in the ultra yep. world. And that's where the crowd can split a good bit in that sense. Uh, so I just want to get that out of the way first. And then I want to talk about two specific philosophies with ultra training or general, uh, specific avenues that are worth talking about. And that is speed and threshold work. I'm going to combine those two for the sake of conversation. Um, And then duration of long run and time on feet. So our philosophies on both of those things. Um, I am of a firm belief that, as you say, like, you know, uh, the more efficient you are at faster paces, the significantly more efficient you are and less taxing and perceived exertion, slower paces feel to the body. So the biggest mistake I feel people make that are training for ultras is they go out and run long and they run slower, steady every day, much like Rhea Koble outlined in her interview. Mm-hmm. And that sucked the life out of her, did it not, by her own admission. So um, putting in structured, purposeful speed work, that may not even look much different than if you were training for a half marathon or even a 10K. Of course, there'll be some tweaks, but the first mistake that most people make is they they put less emphasis on the speed work. And I feel like you're digging yourself a, a very big hole that way. And also much limiting your top end potential come race day. 100%. I've I've heard it explained that the simplest
1: way to train for an ultra is to train for a marathon. Yeah. With an extra long run. And I would tweak that a bit from my own uh, motto and say it's marathon training on your course specific terrain. Mm-hmm. Because really you don't need more volume or I don't even believe a longer long run than marathon training but you need course specific training and then if we go back to what is our philosophy on marathon training it's that the vast majority of everyday athletes don't do enough speed work in their marathon training so to water it down it's marathon training which has to include speed work and must be done on race specific terrain That's our 10, 20,000 foot view of what we would do for ultra training.
0: And I don't know how specific we necessarily need to get other than like, is there a place for mile repeats in ultra training, a 50 mile ultra, in my opinion, yes. Is there, I mean, depending on the race or at least the equivalent of, let's say a mile repeat takes you seven minutes. Then you're doing seven minutes undulating terrain repeats or climb repeats, Um, shorter stuff raises your ceiling and when you work at a lower capacity than what your ceiling is you can extend your performance over further duration right so long slow slogs completely in training you're leaving like i am going to say for 30 40 of your real capabilities on the table i just made that up by the way not no studies have been done on that but <laughs> but you got to do your speed work and even like if it was the week of an ultra you know, for example, I did two minutes and one minutes before my 17-mile trail race, uh, which is one of my favorites a week of a race. 17 is not an ultra. However, I may still throw some short spicy stuff in, or at least finishers, to keep that efficiency.
1: So do that. Tell you what, Matt Carpenter is one of the legends of the mountain running community in the United States. Now, there's some division out there on on him, but there's no division on how effective he was as a racer. Absolute monster. Still holds uh, the Pikes Peak record for going up and coming down he Mm -hmm. just an absolute animal and for a while he held the the manitou incline record as well he consistently not every week but many of the weeks in his training for marathons and ultras in the mountains would run 10 to 12 by 400 weekly no well this is a man who never ran a flat in his life in the mountains but ran 10 to 12 by 400
0: fast almost weekly in his training for ultras. I challenge you guys to, uh, we're getting to the season where John Albin's going to transition to running. Okay. If you follow John Elbin on Strava, all you see are these freaking snowy skis every day. And they, he doesn't put what he's doing and you have no idea what he's really doing. And now we're going to get a racing season. He's going to do his trail stuff and watch what you see. And 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 John's an ultra athlete with this mountain, you know, racing. Um, just go and wait so and see what you see him doing on the track one of the best in our sport anyways, you're going to start seeing 400 meter repeats pop up. You're going to start seeing that round oval pop up on his map on Strava, yet he's training for mountain races with over 10,000 feet of vert and who knows how long at times and duration. So some of the best are doing it.
1: Yeah. I would say that as an ultra athlete, you still have to hit 5k pace or faster at least once every other week. Mm -hmm. Minimum. And, And it's not going to hurt you. And if you are very, very against that, then there's really easy ways to do that. Do it uphill and do it downhill.
0: Yeah, of course, sneak into the middle of your long run, do it all sorts of ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, a a real easy one is to do about 20 minutes of mountain running and then do, let's say you're gonna do 12 by 400, three by 400 up, three by 400 down, three by 400 up, three by 400 down, and then now go continue your run. But if you can run downhill comfortably and efficiently at faster than 5K pace, you can cruise downhill at 80% effort all day long in an ultra. So you can make it race specific, but you got to touch on some faster speeds. It's the Mm -hmm. only way to do two things. One, become more efficient and two really take the pounding that's needed to withstand an ultra.
0: Well, yeah. and, And that goes into just, just capacity, heart rate, capacity, aerobic and anaerobic capacity. Um, You know, I was thinking last weekend in this trail race I had done, I was keeping a close eye on my heart rate monitor because I knew it was a two hour race, but in training, I go out and do threshold work and I would sit just above 170, 170 or so. And I know I can hold that for at least an hour, right? And I know how uncomfortable that is. And 172, 173, I feel like is going to be my limiter. So I went and held, oh, 168, let's say was my average for this two hour event the 17 mile trail race, but 168 actually felt pretty dang good until I hit about an hour, 20 hour 30, where I was completely in control, not overextended and comparatively felt like I was relaxed at that effort. And that's really what we're out and, and it came together well, and, and that's what we're outlining for the ultra, just a very extended version of that sitting yeah. sub, uh, capacity just seems comfortable and you can do it longer. So yes, hundred percent. Mm-hmm. And part of a big part of
1: withstanding an ultra physically and mentally is withstanding the the, just the absolute pounding your body takes. Yep. Hitting the ground that many times for that many hours is destructive. Hitting it running downhill is very destructive. And so the only, there's only three ways to build that up. The first is through high volume training, the second is through very, very long depleting workouts where you get to a bad place. But the third is through, hitting the ground really hard, and that's speed work. So -hmm. if you can do downhill speed work and flat ground speed work, that is, you, you get this super compensation from that that mimics the type of damage you would take and then the super compensation you would get from doing big volume and big, big long runs. It's a safe way to build up that pounding. And it's been proven time and time again that you can withstand, you can build up cramp prevention and bonk prevention through speed work as effectively as you can through endurance work, as long as it's paired with some endurance work.
0: Yep. 100% agree with that. Well, since we're talking, I don't know if we need to dive in more to the speed or even threshold work than what we just stated. Do you want to add anything to that? Because I want to go to the long run in our philosophy on that. Just that it's like the marathon.
1: There's people who are going to say you don't ever have to go faster than threshold and others that say you have to go faster. But whichever you do, you have to do it intentionally and intensely. If you're going to do threshold work, it's got to be good threshold work. You can't do, oh, I'm going to do an eight mile run and I'm going to pick it up a little bit towards the end. And that's the extent of my ultra speed training. That just doesn't cut it in terms of maximizing your race day potential. You can survive it without that, but you can't maximize it without that.
0: And we're talking about performing to your potential, not surviving. That's what we're talking about. Um, So let's go to the long runs then and our philosophy on that. Yeah. I guess I'll just kick this off. So uh, first of all, you know, the the long run or the, the back-to-back long runs would be a, a typical ultra training approach. Mm. I do believe in, I do prescribe, I do agree with. I don't prescribe, agree with them being done every weekend or maybe every other weekend because of the re- you know stress recovery adaptation cycle. So at most, I believe every other weekend in the ideal world, every three or four weeks. Um, and that's where we're talking... Going out and hitting runs on back to back days that are taxing, maybe accumulating as much or more time than you actually would in your event itself, but splitting it up into two days and also adding some quality work I like on the front side of it all so that the remainder of your weekend is done in a fatigued state. For example, hitting a six, eight, 10 mile tempo in quotes run on Saturday morning, coming back with a two hour run on Saturday afternoon and then going out for three hours on Sunday morning at just a nice relaxed pace you're going to accumulate roughly six hours of work. Maybe your ultra is going to take you five or six or seven hours and you're right in that wheelhouse. But it's something that I believe a lot of people overdo and believe they need that stimulation too often for physiological adaptation and they're wrong and they end up injured and they end up slow sometimes too. So that's like my, my 10,000 foot view, at least on the back-to-back long run. What is your philosophy on that? I agree. And it's
1: funny because I would have had the opposite spin had we done this a decade ago when I first started looking into ultra training, when I was trying to figure it out for myself and for a couple of people I was working with, I had to look into athlete interviews to find out some good information on back-to-back long days. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't done as much and it wasn't talked about. And suddenly now we've come a decade later to the point where not only do, does everyone know about it, or not everyone, but a lot of people know about it, but it's overdone now where it used to be like it was this novel idea, back-to-back long runs, whoa, I wonder if that's the new secret. And now it's, all right, we need to pull the reins back because we're doing too much of that. It's like it's like speed work for the track. There's only so much speed work you wanna do before you stop recovering between it and it starts impacting negatively your next one. Same mm-hmm. thing for back-to-back long runs. I believe firmly in it and I agree with you that we've
0: reached the age that it's overdone a bit. Mm-hmm. That's just what I've seen. And I also get feedback. I have a few ultra athletes who have believe, coached under other ultra coaches or have been self-prescribed coaching. And I get this, like, it seems so low volume at times and you're not, I'm not getting, I'm only sending them out for three hour long runs, you know, typically. And it's like not, you know, they're uncomfortable with it. And then what happens on race day, they go out and they smash it because they're actually recovered. They've soaked up their training. They've given enough stimulation. They're not overtrained, Their joints and muscles and tendons are all recovered and everything comes together on race day. And sometimes we all work in this like average fatigued state. We don't even know what good feels like. Yep. And, and as Dr. Clary said, as a lot of people much smarter than I have said, especially on an episode of the science of ultra and physiological adaptation and tapering, talking about holding on to all of your physiological adaptation for like 20, 21 days, if I went out, if I was an ultra athlete, I'm just going to tangent real quick because I think it's important. There's a science of ultra uh, episode on tapering, and the best in the world have studied this. And this gentleman who has a PhD and he has studied this forever came on and said, honestly, as far as physiological benefit, as far as VO2 max, as far as your top line capability, lactate, you know, buffering, all of that. Twenty days, if you ran like four miles every other day at a recovery effort you would maintain almost all of your physiological adaptation through almost three weeks before markers start to drop. So the rest is either biomechanical efficiency, remembering the movement and pacing, and then mental if you're tapering. Three weeks, Bracken, physiological markers barely change if you go out and run roughly 30 to 45 minutes every other day at recovery heart rate effort. That's wild.
1: That's a full week longer than what usually experts will tell you. Crazy. And it also highlights the fact why it drives me crazy when People put in a nine-week block of training. A week before a race, they have a hiccup. They get sick or they miss something and they're like, well, I just got back to running this week. I just don't expect much. It's like, get over yourself. (laughs) You think it just poof. Like you got a runny nose and all of your fitness ran out of your nostrils. Come on. (laughs) I believe it. (laughs) It's wild. It's why people in track race so well at the end of seasons. They qualify for a meet they weren't prepared to qualify for, and they PR two, three straight weeks. It's because maybe they're rested for the first time all year, and their fitness holds on. So yeah. I love that. I <laughs> almost fell off
0: the stool again. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you get for trying to engage your core on your exercise ball. Oh, right? my core is smoked. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But yes, I, I just wanted to I wanted to hit in on that point because it's important. You you yes you need you need that stimulation. You need your body to be accustomed to. this effort. You need on all the fueling levels and testing out your gear and all of that 100%. But even every three or four weeks is enough. My typical protocol, my belief, give somebody a traditional long run week one, give somebody a quality long run week two, and then week three, combine them both and maybe a back to back and then give them a big recovery week following it and rinse and repeat. That's a typical, like, I feel like that's a safe, a safe combination Uh, as a generalization. I don't know what your approach is, but that's just what I've found people to respond really well to. I like every three.
1: Sometimes what I'll do is every other. Mm -hmm. But uh, So week one, easy long run. Week two is double quality weekend. Week three, easy long run. Week four is big run. One single run. One single big run. And I've had blocks that I put together for people with double weekends every other week, but they're generally combining modalities. So day one might be a 12 mile run with six at tempo and day two might be 60 minutes of high end aerobic power hiking on the treadmill or pulling a tire or, and I like to switch up. I like to combine those days with skill work. doesn't sound like the ultra realm is the time for skill but I think it's one of the most skill rich areas because your skill matters for longer. I think there's a skill to holding your form together after Mm -hmm. three hours of racing. I -hmm. think there's a skill to descending well after three hours of racing. I think there's a skill to to keeping your food down after three hours of racing. And so I like to combine all those. So as I alternate throughout the training block, week one, your your first back to back day might be flat followed by hill next week. It might, or two weeks later, hill followed by flat Mm -hmm. or descents emphasize one day climbs the next day. I like to switch it back and forth. So by the time you get to race day,
0: you felt every stage of fatigue at every different type of skill you could use. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with all of that. I, you know, before I got into this trail OCR stuff, which was in 2016, I found this sport. Um, I've been coaching since 2007 in some capacity and almost all my coaching was on the roads or the track, right? Preparing people for road races, a number of marathons, uh, all of that sort of thing um, before I got into this. And initially when I was young in my twenties and I was coaching, um, not nearly as many athletes and not nearly as much perspective, Oh, you're training for a marathon? Well, I'm going to increase your long run every week by a mile. Simple formula. Thought it was safe. Let's start you at 10 and go to 11 and 12 and bump you all the way up to 22 and then just kind of coast in, right? Well, what happened with a lot of my athletes was when we get upwards of that 15, 16 mile and it's back to back every weekend, all those little niggles and nagles started popping up on these road athletes. All And pretty soon we have people limping into their races. And so... I changed my philosophy based on like user data over time, saying you know what, every other week for a really big effort is enough, and let's replace that middle weekend with some quality work. Let's make up for lack of duration with over speed training instead. And I found people stayed a lot healthier, and I found like the results were just as good or better. So I did that because I unintentionally injured a bunch of people, (laughs) or at least you know, I mean that's how we that's how we get there, right? We fail forward, as Yancy Culp says, and so that's where I came up with that, noticing like. Now, that's also a sport in which you're doing the same thing on the roads, on flat terrain all the time, which leads to overuse more than, I think, trail running. But you get my point. So I base that on, like, years of kind of fucking up, to be honest. So that's where I that's where I stand on that. That's a credit to you. There's still a lot of
1: people out there doing the same thing they were doing 10 years ago. Mm. There's nothing wrong with saying, this is the best training plan I've ever put together, as long as that's still not true three or four years later. I believed it at the time. Yeah, we should be proud of what we do at the moment, in the moment but it better not be our peak.
0: Right. We should peak on the day we die. Since we started this podcast, Bracken, have you tweaked or changed your training philosophies or coaching with athletes a number of times already since we started this? I have grown more since talking about coaching than I did in my 15 years up to that point. If I went back and we had to re-go over an episode or two early in our training Tuesdays, I may say or approach things differently than I even would now, and that's only a year and a half later. So to say we're growing is constant. Constant. Yeah. All right.
1: Back to long stuff. This is another reason why I really like getting away. And I, I I don't do it as often as I'd like to with athletes. But since we talked about it an episode or two ago, I had a couple of people reach out and say, hey, I'm a candidate for a, a non-seven week cycle. But th- these are the times where I like to move to a nine or 11 day cycle because suddenly you're not bumped up against the recovery timeline anymore. Now you go to nine day cycle. And now every other week, nine day week is a double week because it fits so much smoother with that. Now you don't have to do a three week where now I don't get an easy run until every third cycle. And I feel like it just feels, it hits weird on my body, but now I just one week, easy, one week, double one week, easy one week, double and the week is nine days. You get more time between, but mentally you stay on the, I don't get farther than one training Many, many microcycle away from it.
0: That's still something I have not experimented with yet, Bracken. I'm a slave to the calendar and one day maybe, but I think from philosophy and what you've said, I agree that would be the most applicable in ultra training, even more beneficial on a longer rotating schedule, Um, just based on the damaging and recover effects of long effort work.
1: I think it applies to certain segments of the population more too any race really but especially if you want volume i think that the new runner benefits from it because then you can do back-to-back days or build to three days of running and then take a day off and then three more and take a day off and get in a routine of that rather than trying to fit that in seven days and get all your runs in because you can still hit two three quality workouts and some runs and lots of cross training the second runner that it really applies to is the masters runner who i can still do all the work i used to do but Man, it costs me extra days in recovery now. Instead of futzing with your schedule, just make your week longer. Plug in your extra recovery day after each day, and now you've got this rolling schedule rather than Sunday caps the end of my week every single time. I was just reading this weekend about Meb, you know, refreshing myself because I got questions about the nine-day again, and I wanted to be able to mm. <laughs> defend it properly. And Meb Kofleski switched to a nine-day later in his career. He said, I can still do all the same workouts I used to be able to, but I cannot do them in seven days anymore. Switched to nine, and at thirty two weeks before his 39th birthday, he won the Boston Marathon. So these, these type of things work, but again, they're lifestyle limited. If you have a job that only lets you get out on the weekends, you're kind of stuck in a seven-day cycle.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, even uh, Hunter McIntyre, speaking of the aging athlete, He's not old by any standard. What is he, 31 or 32? I forget how old Hunter yeah. is. But in his episode, what did he say? He said, what's the difference between now and a few years ago? Like every time I swing the hammer hard, I can swing it as hard as I ever have. But the blowback is twice as hard as it ever has been. So the recovery is slower. So I like that that outline for the older or the, you know, the endurance athlete. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. We're all experiencing it. So before we move on to volume, let's talk about the single long run,
1: the long, long run people Mm -hmm. really, really like their Strava long runs. Yeah. What is the minimum distance and or duration? And I think that's important to talk about, that in the ultra world, duration really matters more than distance because there's just no set time that you're going to be on course for necessarily. But uh, minimum and then maximum distance you like to prescribe for athletes.
0: Well, a lot of what we talk about, Bracken, we have learned on our own. Right. We have learned through trial and error. We've developed our own philosophies on this. This is not one of the areas in which I'm claiming that is the case. Okay. I will say that I am taking what other people have said that have much more tenure in this ab- arena. And on the physiological adaptation front, again, from people who have researched this, it looks like, you know, return on a return on investment starts to really wane after roughly the three hour mark. Um, as far as maybe physiological adaptation. Now, what it does not address is how lo- how does it feel to be on my feet for five hours? How do my feet feel in these shoes for five hours if I'm only running three in training? How does my nutrition stack up the second last two hours of the race versus the first three? Those things are not addressed. So I think it's a bit of a gray area as far as this all goes because there's other factors involved. Definitely. But um, I do not believe, and my experience you know, is limited compared to some that you do need to be going out and running five hour long runs and prep for a five or six hour race. But that's based again on people much smarter than I am and what they have said. So that's where I'll start with that. What about you?
1: It's a good answer because you can't draw a linear graph through. You always need to be at two thirds of race distance or 120% of it because where does that deviate? Well, it might be true for a marathon. If you can get to 20 in a long run, you should be pretty well set up. But for a 31, do you have to get to 24 or 25? Mm-hmm. What about for 50? Do we have to run a 30 mile long run for 50? Maybe. Do we have to run 70 for a hundred mile race? You know, that it, it's, it doesn't scale correctly. And so no. it does become a case by case basis. But there are compelling arguments to be made that you can get by on three hours or less for any distance.
0: Camille Heron, for example, I brought her up before. I was just going to ask you about her. That's Do you, really? you see how I was trying to butt in there? But I, that's exactly what I was going to ask you about. Do you have anything you want to ask me? Yeah.
1: Tell me about this Camille chick. Well, Camille is a monster and she is the world record holder for t- distance covered in 24 hours. And she did it on a track, which means she's a psychopath because she can stay <laughs> on it for 24 hours of just running a 400 meter oval but she claims she doesn't go longer than 20 to 22 miles in training ever. Let that sink in, folks. Say that again, Bracken. What does she hold the world record in? 24 hours of racing, which is well over 100 miles on the track, and she's never going over 20 to 22 miles in training.
0: Okay, it's sunk in. She's the exception in a sense, but...
1: She, she's an exception in that she's an extreme physical performance outlier, but she's not an exception in terms of what people do. The lower volume you are, the more important it is to get some of these long double days or really long runs from time to time. But if you run decent volume, that volume helps to buoy your long run. And So if you can run decent volume, you don't have to go out and run a 30-mile race to be ready for a 30-mile race.
0: Although I will say... Go ahead.
1: I was just going to say that the piece that you talked about is right, is what does it feel like? When Ross and I were prepping for his race in Tennessee... We did a lot of 90-minute to two-and-a-half-hour runs on weekends, on hills, but we did a four-hour day because he had to know what it felt like to be an hour past three because his race was six hours. He had to know what it felt to be in the second half of the race, and then we called it by four because you know what you know by that point, and every step after that is a risk, but he felt pretty good through 245, three, and by 330, he was feeling it, and now it wasn't a mystery on race day and he knew that i felt this before i know i'm gonna be okay and you go in without that oh everything's gonna be fine feeling and without the what happens if it feels
0: bad we have the physiological adaptation piece right yeah which is like blood and oxygen transport and resiliency of the skeletal system uh, and then you have the whole auxiliary part of it, which is exactly it. How does it feel? What is my body going to do? What's my GI system going to do? How do I manage my water intake? Where am I going to be at? How much food can I handle? Like, oh, I've noticed I get a blister in this shoe, but it never happened until I hit three and a half or four hours. Like all That's those exactly things, it. You can't, I don't know if there's a right answer other than like, you need to have somewhat of an idea what it feels like to be on your feet for a long time. And The nuances in deciding how long is long enough is really tough. So I believe that you should have at least
1: one or two efforts that are long, more than three hours in prepping for a race that's going to be more than three hours. Mm -hmm. How often do you recommend that happening?
0: Well, uh, I would say that if you're working backwards from race day, first of all, uh, gosh, People think they're going to lose stuff so fast, and they're just so wrong. So, I mean, long efforts—six weeks out, maybe would be the last one I would do. That'd be a true long effort, and then maybe six weeks before that. And there you have it—you're you're eighteen weeks out at that point if you start following some sort of timeline. Uh, that's what I would say. What would you say?
1: I I don't know if I've ever put them closer than four weeks together, and I like five to six weeks apart. Mm-hmm. sometimes eight depending on the the duration but yeah you can't get too close to the race what I really like to do is I like if I'm only going to do one I put it dead set in the middle I split mm-hmm. the the cycle into two parts and one of them ends part one and kicks off part two otherwise I put it in thirds I don't think you need that many of them because all your th- two and a half to three hour efforts are really going to buoy those big long ones The really the long ones are your learning experience gear test you know, we set up our aid station so that you can practice three and a half, four hours in what tends to go wrong on you when you get sluggish, when you're trying to come into an aid station and not think right and what you're looking for at that time. But they are few and far between.
0: Yeah. And I mean, even like, I'm a firm believer that if you go on this like 20, 21 day physiological holding on to your fitness, like belief and then really, I mean, at the closest, like three weeks out, I believe like you could use a full three week deloader taper into any true long event. That doesn't mean you're completely backing off, but the bulk of the long stuff is done three weeks out and now it's time to just keep everything sharp, right? So at, mi- at minimum three weeks, but that would be way too close for comfort for me, so...
1: Yeah. I think you have to over, you need to do more speed than most people think and less really big efforts than most people think, but you got to nail everything in between.
0: Yeah. I do want to talk about the in-between too. Um, in-between meaning like, okay, we're talking about the long runs and we talked about speed, but like what should volume look like in between that? And and I'm under the uh, the philosophy that do you need to be going out and doing 15 mile recovery runs because now you're a high volume ultra runner? Honestly, I don't see a whole lot of difference in people like people who are running these long, crazy recovery run mileage in the middle of the week for the sake of doing it. And then still doing a long run on the weekend, your long runs kind of accomplishing everything you need to that week. And you don't need to be sneaking in unnecessary volume, like two hour recovery runs midweek or, or anything like that. Like training doesn't look like if you were a 10 ker I don't know if I would change much of your recovery, like what your, like your Monday through Friday might look in a seven day schedule I don't think would look a ton different as far as the volume piece goes, other than that big weekend effort. That's how I typically like to train my athletes. What's the point in going into every long run already fatigued or too fatigued into your quality work, and then because you're trying to get in junk miles on recovery days? Um, I think it should be relatively, I uh, don't subdued as far as volume in between. What do you think? Well, first I look. I always look at the top. I look at if you
1: had unlimited funds and unlimited potential how would you be trained? So I look at world-class athletes because they don't Mm -hmm. mess around with things that don't work. In fact, they push the limits on what's legal. So if it works for them, you know a watered-down version of that works for you. And the top ultra runners do not run bigger volume than the top marathoners. Nope. They just don't because there's diminishing returns after somewhere around 80 miles per week. If you can get up to 80, now 80 is a big number for a normal person. But if you can get up to 80, 100 doesn't make you very much better, but 80 makes you, if you can handle it, better than 60 does. But 100 doesn't necessarily make you better than 80. We're just gonna use those big numbers that get thrown around sometimes. So jumping from marathon to ultra, you don't jump from 100 to 200 miles per week or from 50 Mm -hmm. to 100. You really just increase some of those big efforts you do and you move more of your time to trail versus road, if it's a trail ultra. So no, I don't think the in-between needs to change. I do think that extra time on feet should get added whenever possible.
0: And I think walking, hiking, and biking are fantastic for that. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I just think, you know, maybe swinging the hammer harder on your quality days, but filling the gaps with that same old, let's say, eight-mile recovery run or your 10-mile recovery run, if you're an ultra-athlete. Like, I don't see a much of a place to go much further than that. Again, I'm being general. It's just my bias philosophy. But then maybe your Tuesday workout is bigger, and it's like, do I normally do eight by a mile? No, that's that's crazy. But I'm swinging the hammer harder on my quality days, but I'm still, the sole goal is still to recover, right? Between those big efforts. And that's where I just don't think we need the volume as much as people think on the recovery efforts. That's what I'm trying to say.
1: Our volume criteria, our model for volume is always the same. You run the most that you can handle without any possible issue arising. Or the opposite end of that is you run the least you can handle while getting every possible benefit from it. So we're not ever saying you need to run more just for the sake of running more for example with myself when i was in colorado at my best training for 40 to 60 minute races i was running 70 mile weeks consistently in the 60s peaking in the low 70s when i was training for an ultra i was running mid to low 60s because as i increased my long runs and i did a lot of quality long runs Mm -hmm. i couldn't handle long recovery days because I was beat from big vert days and from a lot of descending. And so I was either going to have to, it's kind of came into that, that question we asked last time. If I can't do this because this happens, does this really need to happen? And mine Mm -hmm. was, I can't run 10 mile recovery days because then I can't hit my big vert on the weekend. But because big vert was needed. I realized I don't need 10 mile recovery. Did a lot of six to seven mile recoveries and then mm-hmm. I could hit my big vert weekends. So my volume dropped slightly moving up in distance because my long runs took more out of me because I'm a fast twitch athlete versus a slow twitch.
0: Yeah, that's exactly the point I think I was trying to make and you experienced that. Yeah. Yeah. So where do we where do we want to go from here, Bracken? I'm looking at the clock. I do, oh, this is going to be an episode where like... It, we could do a part two, right? Yeah. But where do we want to go to, To if we have 10 or so minutes to put a bow tie on this, and we've only scratched the surface. I know it's not doing the episode justice.
1: We should squeeze in vert and nutrition in gear testing. Two minutes each. Okay. I think that's fair. All right. All right. Go. Vert is where I hit my 120% rule. I do not do it with volume. I do not do it with long run. I do it with a vert and speed. You got to have more speed than you're going to need on course. <laughs> <laughs> Did you go into falsetto there, Bracken? <laughs> Brayden sat on the stool during the during the haircut. So I afterwards, I, I rinsed it down and I cleaned it. It's a little more slippery than usual.
0: <laughs> Bracken almost landed on his back and knocked down some shoes
1: behind Set a PR for most stool falls in a day now. Almost stool falls. All right, so 120% of speed and then 120% of vert needed. If you're going to do a 5,000 foot gain and loss over the course of a 50K, you got to be ready for Mm 7,000. If you're going out to hit 10,000, you got to be ready for 12 because the descending and the climbing trash your body harder on race day than they do in training. And you have to be able to handle that. So that's where I put my 120% swing the hammer extra hard is with vertical gain and specifically downhill work.
0: Yeah. I agree with that completely. That's um uh, and that's a place where, you know, even if you need to cheat it one day or two where you get on an incline trainer and you just climb just to do it. Doesn't simulate downhill, don't get me wrong, not even close. But um I agree because that has the quickest potential to just ruin your legs and race. And once you're useless that way, you know, power hiking at best and pretty soon the slowest power hiking you've ever experience in your life coupled with the most nimble downhill once your hips go. Uh, I agree. And, yes. the, and the other flip side of that 120% coin is we don't need to dive into it, but it's the over speed trainings, training much more intensely at pace and effort than the ultra will provide. So um,
1: sweet. I agree. To put a bow on the volume and vert category, when you start doing vert and trail, your volume of time goes way up. So mm-hmm. I think for the longer your race that you're preparing for, the more important it is to track hours instead of miles. I think yeah. that that's a good way to stay on top of your volume without becoming you know, beholden to I have to hit 80 miles or I have to hit 40 miles, go by time.
0: Yeah, I made that switch a few years ago and it made things a lot easier in my mind. Good. All I look at is time, You know, the mileage is irrelevant at the end of the week at this point, yeah, especially when you're trail racing. 100%. Gear, let's move to gear. All right, gear and nutrition go together with me for ultra and that they can
1: make or break your day and you have to test constantly throughout training. Every single long effort and hill effort I do in training is in my race shoes, socks, shorts, underwear, top pack. I do my downhill speed training in my race pack. Gotta know how it rides at different paces. Gotta know how it chafes. You have to try everything out and you have to have your hot weather, The weather you think it's going to be and you're colder than you think it's going to be um, set up for water, for nutrition, and for gear. You have to have three versions and you have to bring all three on a race day. Just like Rhea talked about, she had enough calories for 24 hours of racing and like five different types of nutritional plans there. So she could just go with what worked on that day because things change in an instant in an ultra race.
0: Yeah. And even if, even if like you don't, your workout that day doesn't require that you need two full hydration flasks and all your stuff packed on your back and wearing all the fancy gear for just even a two hour run, let's say, no, like you still got to put that stuff on you still got to learn it and understand it. So you don't even need to just put it on in your big efforts at times. I mean, it can be more of a staple in your training, in my opinion. And I will also say we are creatures of habits and we do get stuck in our habits like this nutrition or this fuel or this hydration strategy works for me. Um, and that's understandable. This works. I'm going to go back to it. I do think there is a, there's usually always something better, a better combination. The tinkering is worth your time. Um, so rolling the dice sometimes on a workout T one, confirm that your old way was the best way or two, maybe uh, understand something that even held up a little better for you. So I still think experimenting is worthwhile in training. Um, even if you feel like you're pretty dialed in, never stop learning or experimenting, and if the experiment fails horribly what is that perspective that your old way is still the best way and that's peace of mind so 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 not getting stuck in a rut that way i think can be can be helpful and things go wrong your bottle pops your your fuel falls out you
1: forget it in aid station your crew doesn't make it to the checkpoint in time or they get lost and sometimes you're at the mercy of whatever fuel you can find either from a fellow racer or from an aid station and if they don't have your brand you know that's, that's tough. You Mm -hmm. either go without or you get through it. And so even if it's not your preferred fueling method, sometimes it's worth chewing on some things that you don't prefer so that you can actually access them on race day. If needed, you have to plan for the worst when it comes to ultra running.
0: Yeah. And we should talk shoes specifically. I think, you know, first I do want to read off just a couple just
1: Benchmarks for people to start shooting for with caloric and sodium needs and that kind of thing. It'll take 30 seconds Okay, so jumping off point for training and for racing This is what I've settled in on for myself as a six foot 170 pound male I need about 250 calories per hour, but I can get away with 190 to 200 is my bare minimum So you're still talking two to 300 calories per hour 600 to 900 milligrams of sodium and 17 to 24 ounces of water per hour that's my sweet spot, up to 34 ounces of water if it's really, really hot. But too much water, too many calories, too much sodium is just as bad as not enough. So those are those the metrics I try to hit, two to 300 calories, 600, 900 milligrams of sodium, and 17 to 24 ounces of water.
0: And the reason that we don't like say, hey, you could just eat it, you know you're burning 1,000 calories an hour, so you should consume 1,000 calories an hour is primarily because of assimilation and GI distress. Does it make sense to refill the cup uh, equal to what you're depleting it in theory? Yes, but your body can't assimilate it. You are in fight or flight mode. Uh, your body is not putting a lot of energy into digesting foods, and that's where the problem lies. So just enough to keep sort of the blood sugar up, the body feeling good, a steady supply of glucose, um, not necessarily trying to replace all the calories we're burning in real time. That's not That's not what we're going for. Absolutely not. All right, yeah. Race Shoes. Uh, I guess for me, um, when it comes to ultras, the theory like less is more can be thrown out the window. If you're splitting ounces or fractions of ounces in how much your race shoes weigh, because you think that's going to make you better over a long duration, you are dead wrong. The shoe that you're comfortable in, sometimes a little more shoe prevents, just slows down that muscle damage. So um, I think more is more oftentimes than not more when it comes to the shoe in the ultra game depending on technicality of course, obviously being factored in, but that is just how I feel about shoes. I think more is more. What do you think?
1: I think that when we get really, really trashed and depleted, the shoe that supports your stride at that point is the shoe you start with. You don't start with the shoe that feels good for the first hour. You you start with the shoe that's gonna feel good in hour five. And I don't care what shoe that is. There are people who run it in minimalistic uh, zero drop ultras, and there are people who will not touch an ultra ultra course without a Hoka. Mm -hmm. I think you look at all those force loading studies that have been done, and you take a look at the stride mechanic studies that have been done, and you take all of those and you throw them out the window and say, what gets me through the fastest, safest, and healthiest through the finish line? And mm-hmm. that is testing 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 doesn't matter what worked for anyone else order a bunch of shoes try them all on send back the ones that don't feel right keep two and test those out in long runs and that's that's really the only way around it yeah if you had to pick one or two for the long long stuff do you have any that come right to mind i mean if it's long if i'm on feet longer than two two and a half hours I'm only wearing a version of the Speedgoat, either Evo or Standard, or the Evo Mafate. Mm -hmm. You can do the Mafate Speed as well, but those are the only two shoes I currently trust my feet and legs to for uphill, downhill, and flats. That's -hmm. just the way it is for me. There are some other really good options out there that I'm looking at and testing
0: out, but for my feet, Speedgoat or Mafate. Hoka nailed it with the Speed Goat and the Evo Speed Goat line. And basically the difference is the Evo Speed Goat is just a little bit lighter, a little bit racier, uh, less material upper, just just a little bit yeah, snazzier. We'll and a little it. less stable, unfortunately. Yeah, um, but it feels like it has a little less stack height too to me, which makes me feel, I don't know, like I can handle a little more technical terrain on it a little better. But they nailed that shoe. Um, and then I will say, you know, I feel like I can run for days in, in my VJ extreme, if there's soft terrain or it is really windy for some reason, like even more than the max for me, the extreme, I don't know what it is, the extreme, or even like the I rock or their zero, uh, they feel really good. If you feel like you're really in the muck for me, uh, my feet don't hurt in those shoes for a long time. They will hurt in other models. So I I would, if I was going 50 K and I knew it was a slot fest, Um, I would probably strap uh, one of those, knowing that the ground will take my impact uh, for me.
1: To me, that's the single biggest issue with shoes is if you encounter a long distance slop fest. Mm -hmm. And that's the tricky point. Long and hard, Hoka for me all day. Short Mm -hmm. and sloppy, VJ for me all day. Long and sloppy, I've got some tough decisions to make.
0: Uh Yeah. Anything, um, dang it, man, I know... I believe we could go, we could have went for two plus hours on this topic today. Yeah. But time constraints. What else do we want to add into the conversation? I think recovery.
1: I mean, we've talked about taper longer than you think you need coming into an ultra. Come in feeling a little sluggish almost, maybe a few pounds heavier. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. Take your time and rest. Don't count calories. Coming out the other side, I firmly believe you have to take longer than shorter to recover. It just does more to you on a nervous system level, on a cellular level, across your, in a skeletal level, across your body. It takes more than a week to recover from an ultra. Even if you feel okay, there are some rare exceptions like a Ryan Atkins who can do things that others can't, but take your time, cross train, avoid actual intensity and volume for minimum, I think a week and a half, two weeks, minimum.
0: Yeah, your life energy is gonna start coming back. And you're going to start to feel like you're going to be walking like down the street into work and be like, I feel kind of peppy and light on my feet today. Like suddenly, finally, the soreness in my hips are gone and my, my ankles are working again. But that's all a lie to internal like physiological damage. And you go out and try to push and you're just going to dig yourself in, into more of a hole. I mean, you listen to guys like Chris Brown, who is much more of an expert than we are. I'd like to get him on the podcast, actually, and do an ultra-episode. Yeah. That would be fun. That takes a month off, three weeks, a month of nothing after his A race, after Leadville 100, which again is an extreme endurance event, a month of nothing but whatever life was for him, a month. And two months after, a month after starting to run again, his fitness is right back and he's recovered instead of digging yourself a further hole. Those are the best in our sport. So we go back to your Science of Ultra episode
1: where they talked about tapering. That's only a week off of. That's only a week. A month off of training is one week off of... When you start taking a pit like
0: a dive fitness wise a true dive yeah you're gonna lose run economy and things like that but that'll come back pretty quick yeah
1: three weeks is basically a zero-sum game
0: (laughs) if i'm doing that long i'm at least taking two yeah
1: for sure i came back in 12 days after my last trail 50k and it was too soon and i paid for it
0: yeah i took a week off after 37 miles for my 37th birthday and i was complete it was the whole next the whole first week of running was a waste of time i felt like shit. It was sluggish i didn't want to do it and i should have just i should have taken another week at least because that whole week wasn't productive anyways so this is
1: where i use that three-day rule i have i give myself a week or two off and then i have to have three days of desire in a row mm-hmm. day one i'm ready to go all right that starts my clock if still on day two i want to i have one more day if on day three i still want to i get to train but if on day two it's like oh, i'm not ready then my clock restarts yeah it's a good rule the rule of three well we're gonna leave people wanting more And if we need to do a part two of this and dig into the
0: actual details, we do so. It's enough to get the wheels turning, I think, for people. I'm hoping. Yeah. (laughs) Anything to close on? I got nothing other than uh, t shirts are going quick, folks. So if you're one of those common sizes, small, medium, or large, you better get on there and order them because they're going. Yeah, I got a whole order ready to get shipped out tomorrow. So get on them. Thanks, ladies and gents.